Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of Writer's Routine this week, chatting to Christina Sweeney-Baird. She is a lawyer who writes around her work, just published her debut novel, The End of Men, which is a bit worryingly, listen to this, it's set in the near future during a global pandemic where almost every man dies. Now, we talk about writing and editing a book about a pandemic during a pandemic, how she coped with that being all around her, being on the page and in real life every day. Also, you can hear how much she thinks about genre, how she clears up the frequent genre confusion, and she explains how something incredibly serious made her sit up and get writing. I had a near-death experience, which changed things quite a lot, to be honest, when I was 25, when I was nearly done with that first novel, and I'd already had the idea for End of Men. I had sepsis, I nearly died, and it was really intense, very scary, and that really did shift things, and I suddenly became... I think a lot more impatient with myself and kind of I didn't think about it this consciously at the time but there is inevitably a thing of oh my god actually I don't necessarily have limitless time if I want to write this book I need to I need to do it and so from that point I started to get a lot more intense there is more with Christina Sweeney Baird in this week's writer's routine yes Hello, welcome along, welcome back. I'm happy that you found us. My name's Dan Simpson, this is Writer's Routine, where we take a look inside an author's working day, this week with Christina Sweeney-Baird. Now, one of the joys of doing this is speaking to uh, all different forms of of author, of all manner of success. Uh, There's a lot to be gained chatting to full-time writers who publish a bestseller every year, who have a lot of liberty and space to write in, whose day only really gets broken up for doing press, pub, uh, promoting another book that they've done, and they get paid pretty handsomely for it. I am aware that's not the common case, though. Most people write outside of their day job, around their normal nine to five. It's the passion that keeps you going. And that's what it's like for today's author. Uh, Christina Sweeney Baird is a lawyer. Uh, which is a tremendously busy job, not so much 9 to 5, more 7 to 11, really. And then, outside of that, she's written her first novel. It's called The End of Men, set in a future pandemic where 90% of the world's population dies. Uh, We talk about why she likes to be snuggled up when she's writing, how she doesn't think she'll ever acclimatise to uh, to being creative like that in an office situation. Also, how flashcards really help and what they look like for her. 
You can also hear about the writing sprints that she uses to get working and how she cut 30 characters out just to tighten up her novel. Uh, So that's on the way and we get into it as we always do with Christina Sweeney Baird and what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I see um, a wall of books, which is very fitting. Um, I write in my living room. I live in a flat in London and I have just a wall of bookshelves that were there when I um, moved in. Um, And it's really nice to, I feel like, feel like there are lots of stories there. There are lots of books that I find very inspiring. So I tend to see that, tend to write on my sofa so I can look out onto the street. I live on a kind of third floor flat between the, the kind of seeing outside the windows and the books, that is my kind of vaguely inspiring view from, from my sofa where I write. Now, I live in London as well, and I know that space is a, a high old premium. Um, how do you find writing in your living room, though? Uh, if, if you had like an official office to write in, do you think you could do that? Or are you, are you, are you pretty comfortable writing anywhere? So I'm definitely not a coffee shop writer like actually I do really like to write in the same place and if space is an issue I, I I don't know if I would write in in an office if I had one I've definitely found that so I work full-time as a lawyer and I prefer being in the office during the day because that feels like there's a nice division I do my day's work at the office and then I come home and you know home is my writing space um so I've definitely found that 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 has actually been challenging with with working from home. But I like listening to music or having complete silence. So I'm not really an ambient noise person. Although, having said all of that, I'm now going to disagree with myself. And I do sometimes force myself to write in different places because I think it's really important not to romanticise it too much. I don't ever want to risk the feeling of maybe I'm going to get writer's block because I'm not writing in this specific place. So sometimes I do force myself to write on a plane or on a train or like when I'm home in Scotland visiting family like in a coffee shop just to be clear that I can actually write anywhere. And how do you find it when you when you do force yourself to do that? Is is it fairly easy for you to readjust or maybe do you find you have some time you're finding your feet when you're suddenly on a plane trying to crack through a thousand words or so? I do find it easier to edit. I think when I'm in a different place, I find it quite difficult to completely separate myself from the outside world. And if you're trying to, you know, kind of free draft a thousand words, it does take quite a lot of imaginative kind of brain power, I think, to get there. So I do find that going over something I've written before is easier. I remember with The End of Men, there's a scene where two characters are saying goodbye and it's very sad. And I went over and over and over it again and again and again. And I remember very clearly being on a plane and like crying because it was it's a very sad scene. But I couldn't, it was very difficult to write something new, but I could keep going back to it and editing it. And that I could do. Whereas, yeah, if I'm going to write 2000 words, I just want to be on my sofa snuggled up with seven blankets looking at my books. <laughs> Uh, what about the practicalities of the writing space uh, in terms of plot and uh, maybe having ideas around you? I'm talking about post-it notes, uh, you know, plans tacked to the walls. Is there anything like that? If I were to sit there, would I know what you're working on? You would think I was a total chaos muppet, I think, if you saw how I worked. 
Um, there's not often a lot of plans. There's a lot of sheets. So I always have a file. I always have a file of, of sheets of paper where I write plans as I'm going along. You know, so as I know what I'm doing with the book throughout the draft, I'll start getting a sense of what else I need to do before the end. I'm actually using flashcards at the moment. I don't use the post-it planning method that I've seen people use online. I'm more of a pantser than a planner, but I'm trying to world build at the moment as I write speculative fiction. And so for that, one thing I do find very helpful is to create little snippets of something you think would happen in that world. And it's somehow easier to imagine it if you don't have to worry about it in context, you just write it down on a flashcard. And I'm now in the process of working those little snippets into a plan for my third draft that is much more functional and is in order and actually can show my agent what this book is going to look like. So it tends to be a mix of notebooks, flashcards, and then sheets of paper, um, which gradually gets messier and messier as I get closer and closer to the end. Um, and I wish it was slightly more organized <laughs> than it is, but but it gets the job done. Uh, just give me an example of how formed the type of thing that's on a flashcard uh, is it an incredibly detailed paragraph is it like a like just a few words a couple of sentences generally so um i was if you think about spectre fiction as a what if question that you keep asking in, about different parts of the world it could be for example what happens to schools so in schools i think that x would happen with this scenario and then maybe three additional bullet points of a specific example of what would happen for one of my characters has a four-year-old what would happen for her so it's it's a tiny little window into a into the world without the additional detail that you would get if you're describing a character if that makes sense it's you're very you know nailed on with your genre which i don't often get from uh particularly almost debut novelists really they're they're sometimes they're still finding their feet. Is that something when you were working on The End of Men and when you're working on the books since, did you know that that was what you were writing or did that come a bit later when you had discussions with uh, publishers? That's a really interesting question, actually, because I the, the first book I wrote that never got published was a historical romance novel. End of Men is speculative and I'm writing another speculative novel now and I've also written a first and second draft of the YA contemporary. So I'm very much enjoying that I sound like I've got it together when it comes to genre because it feels sometimes a bit confused in my head. But I think I did always know that End of Men was speculative and I really, I'd never considered writing speculative fiction until I, until I read The Power of Enemy Alderman. I think part of it was that that book was so so mainstream, you know, it kind of really crossed over. It wasn't just read by people who were into sci-fi and fantasy. And it really made me go, oh, hang on a second, I think actually speculative fiction is going to work really well for my brain. So I think I, I feel very comfortable writing in that zone and talking about writing in that zone and, and thinking about how it works because it suits the two parts of my brain that enjoy creative, imaginative work and then quite practical problem solving. So it wasn't so much a publisher discussion as much as I think as soon as I started out of memory, really, I knew that I was in the right zone. Yeah, it's just it, it's interesting in, in quite a brilliant way, because as I say, many, many kind of debut novelists kind of have an idea that they're writing maybe a crime book or a thriller book and then you know figure it out as they go along but to 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 start writing and instantly know <clears throat> excuse me the um I guess the, the the exact tone and where this will be placed on a bookshelf is a little bit weird I guess the question then is how much were you thinking about the 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 tricks and and tropes and beat points of speculative fiction as you were writing the end of men i didn't really think about them is the honest answer i was so focused on what the story was i i think the best way to describe it is like concentric circles so this the central question of the end of men is what would the world look like without men 
And then as I was writing it, it, that broadened out. And so you think what would happen to parliament, what would happen to different countries, what would happen to law firms, what would happen to hospitals. And so that first draft I did was, was really focused on world building and was definitely inspired to a, quite a great extent in that structure by World War Z by Max Brooks, which has this multi-narrative structure. And then it wasn't until I was I signed with my agent on the basis of that draft. Um, and we then went through this big rewrite process where we really tried to make sure that it was as emotionally engaging as it could be. And I read Station 11 by Emily St. John Mandel, which became a bit of a North Star for that. So I suppose I didn't, I was I was just always thought about End of Men as its own kind of conceptual world, where I was answering this thought experiment and trying to do it in the most interesting, emotionally engaging way possible. And then along the way, it turns out that the book really has this thrillerish element where for the first half of the book, you're wondering like, are people going to be okay? Who's going to survive? But always to me, it was, it was really a book that at its core had a thought experiment. And then it's happened to have other elements that have appeared over the course of the writing process. Now, if we were to speculate, uh, maybe one day you become a novelist full time and you, you, you're so successful that you, <clears throat> you, you can't do the lawyering anymore. Um, because I know they're both fairly, fairly busy jobs. Uh, would you continue to work in your lounge where you are? Would you get yourself a spec office that you could design as to your taste? Um, I think that, to be honest, I think I will always write on the sofa. My back does not enjoy that. But I, I just can't imagine myself ever writing from like 9am to 4pm in an office. That feels bizarre to me. Maybe that is just because that's not my life. But writing has always been something I've done late at night and on the weekends. And so I don't, I really don't know. I really like the fact that I have two jobs to me they work really well and I don't necessarily aspire to writing full-time I think it would be very difficult for me to be sitting in my house or even sitting anywhere all day trying to write imaginative work when for me kind of going out and engaging with the world and with people and the people I work with that has such an impact I think on my fiction that I did I find it very difficult to imagine myself somewhat ironically for someone who imagines things partly for a living um outside of you know the, the world of sitting at midnight you know on my laptop that's that, that's interesting that you say the the two careers being a, a litigation lawyer and a, being a creative writer work together quite well it, when you were speaking just a few seconds ago uh, and you were rattling off the questions that you would ask yourself for a universe in which no men existed pretty much um how was the balance of and what i mean by that is they are questions that definitely come from a mind of an analytical lawyer type person um how did you go along with the balance of you being a lawyer by day a writer by night how did you feel how do you feel that they complemented each other I think part of it is well I think there's two things one is the practicality and I always say this to people who ask me about writing that the reality is that most people who write a novel do have to write it whilst having a full-time job and so I think it's always worth talking about partly so that no one ever feels like they can't necessarily write a novel because they have a job you know there's never going to be this perfect expanse of time you know for you to write your novel perfectly in a cottage in the woods realistically you do have to just find the time where you can um but for me there's, there's there was two things one was that I started writing my first novel when I started working as a trainee lawyer back in 2016. So I've really never done anything different. And so for me, all I have known really as a kind of professional working adult has been this this duality of I do this quite academic job during the day, which has these various like elements of communicating with people and, you know, drafting correspondence and witness statements and that kind of thing. And then in the evening, you know, my imagination kind of gets to run wild. 
But there's also, I think, an emotional element to it, which is that for me, it's really nice not having too much pressure. You know, you're sitting there and you're going, even if I had a bad day writing today, that's okay, there's always tomorrow. Even if I had a bad day at work today, that's okay, there's always tomorrow. There's there's the other element, I think, of your life that allows neither thing to be too pressurized. And writing a novel is such a mountain, you know, it's 100,000 words thereabouts, takes so many rewrites and redrafting. And even if it goes well, it's still quite a scary at times process. For me, at least, it's been really nice, I think, having a healthy dose of perspective, where I know happily because I work full time you know my bills are paid and I can kind of focus on the writing without worrying too much about the career as an author I think how do you have and we'll come into the routine in just a sec but like how do you still have the uh, emotional and mental capacity to do that how aren't you completely exhausted at the end of the day just because my best friend is a lawyer and he kind of compares his day to having to sit an exam for eight hours like that's the focus that he has to do for his um, and I know having spoken to him at the end of the day, I mean, he's knackered. How, how do you kind of uh, jostle those two things um, just simply with energy? So part of it is a lot of snacks. I do incentivize myself to write a bit like a recalcitrant horse. There's a lot of like, you can have three Haribo if you write 200 words. Um, I ate quite a lot of Magnums when I was writing End of Men. So I mean, partly on like a really practical level, I am also quite tired once it gets to 11pm and need things to like encourage me to do it. But also, I, I don't know, I, I do really enjoy my job. And sometimes for sure, I am tired at the end of the day. And there's a decompression that I think has to happen. I can't like come home at seven, have dinner for half an hour and then just start. There's always a, an actually a longer process than I'd like of kind of letting the day go and then moving into the evening of writing, which I tend to find that reading is the best way to do that. I read a lot of fantasy, partly because I think it's so immersive and I find that most helpful. Um but I, I don't really know any different. You know, I've never, I've never, I've literally never done this job and not written. Um, so sometimes I do have a few weeks off, like when my, I have a book that's with um, my editors or with my agent for, for comments. And I always find myself having a few days where it's really nice and I watch lots of TV and I go out for dinner every night. And then I get, I start to kind of, my fingers get a bit, you know, itchy to write something or I start going, okay, well, what next? What do I want to do next? So I think it just works. I think it works well for me, but I'm not some kind of, robot I do require sugar and caffeine and <laughs> geeing up to get it done so if it's you and your laptop writing that's your that is your writing space what's on the laptop what are you what software are you writing on what what font opinions do you have Christina so it's a MacBook Air and shout out to my mum here who bought it for me after months of tearful laptop drama back oh my goodness it's been a few years ago um I bought a laptop from Lenovo which I do not recommend um and it was a nightmare and I was try- I was desperately trying to start writing um end of man and it just wasn't working and my mum kind of basically had had enough and she was like right your you know rolled up birthday and Christmas present is a MacBook Air here you go write your novel um so that's what I use and I've been using that since I think 2018 now and it has a very dorky but it makes me happy um sticker on it which is from the Night Court which is one of the Sarah J Mass A Court of Thorns and Roses novels um kind of emblems and I use Word um I've seen a lot of people use I think is it, I don't know if it's Scrivener or Scrivener it's Scrivener Scrivener apologies I have to get that right they occasionally sponsor the show so I need to <laughs> insist that you say Scrivener correctly noted um, and I haven't used it partly because I am a bit of a Luddite and Word seems to be working. Um, and I, partly because I think that I could very easily procrastinate by trying to get to grips with something new when what I need to do is just write just write the book. Um, and I tend to use Georgia, 
for no other reason than I think it's vaguely pretty but not ridiculous. And actually, as I say that, I've really put more thought into that than I ever thought I had. But it is, um, it does tend to be Georgia. And then I think sometimes they do turn it into Times New Roman, though, before I send it to my editors, I think, because I think that makes me seem more serious. Again, let's not question that thinking too much because I don't think it's very rational. Georgia seems very uh, like there is a point to every word. I can't think of the words that I'm trying to think of. It, it, it's very almost emphatic. It's like, here is a sentence. That's what I'm getting when I'm looking at Georgia. I like. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you. I do enjoy Georgia. It's got a bit more pizzazz, I think, than Times New Roman, which is by all means classic, but a bit basic. So let's do a weekday because that is kind of m- literally just by numbers, more days. Um, I'm not an early riser, so there is absolutely no writing happening in the mornings. And I'm always in awe of anyone who says that they write in the mornings. So I tend to kind of sort myself um, out for the day with work and kind of make sure I've got my list. I think a big thing for me is to-do list and being organised. So I do my day job and then finish my day job. It completely depends on the day, but anywhere from kind of 6pm through to 10pm-ish. And then dinner is eaten And then really it's a battle against procrastination to sit down is the first part of the routine. So for me, that is partly helped by trackers. I use a lot of writing trackers. I have a word count tracker when I'm doing a first draft. I have a daily word, um, a daily writing tracker, which I do. I have one for every six months. It's in my bullet journal and I tick off a day if I manage to write a thousand words or if I manage to do a good amount of planning or editing. And then I also do productivity tracking, which is inspired by V.E. Schwab, who's a wonderful writer, where I have for each month like a big grid and I tick off the day if I've written. And then also I track half hour um, writing sprints, which is where I spend 30 minutes at least working really intensely with my phone switched off. So those trackers are kind of in the background hovering things to try and make me actually sit down and work. So my routine is trying to force myself to sit down. I always have seven up free. Again, not the coolest drink. Hemingway, I'm not, but that is what I use. (laughs) That is what I use. It's worked really well now for about four years. It's cold, keeps me going. I always have some. It's a bit more, um, it's a bit more adventurous than Sprite though, I think. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Sprite is, Sprite is the poor man's 7-Up Free. And I'm sorry if you're ever going to get sponsored by Sprite, but I just don't like it. 7-Up Free absolutely is a hill that I would die on that no one asked me to, but here I am. Um, There's 7-Up Free, there's snacks. And I either, sometimes I do set myself up at my desk, mainly if I'm in, in the depths of planning where there is just so many pieces of paper. You know, if I'm sitting there and I've got comments from my agent and I'm trying to really grapple with what I'm going to do with the draft, that one I probably do have to sit at my desk, but I, I don't particularly like it. And I will either play music on speakers. Um, I have playlists on SoundCloud. I like music that is not too word heavy. So I do have different playlists for different like drafts and, and bits of the manuscript. But I think often for me, something that has a beat that will keep me awake, but doesn't have a lot of words is helpful. Um, so that's, I'll basically sit and I will set a timer um, for half an hour, an hour or an hour and a half, not look at my phone and just work really intensely for, for, for those periods of time. Or more commonly, if I'm actually in the grips of the draft, I sit on the sofa, I have two blankets. I literally try and like swaddle myself. So I'm so comfy that I don't want to get up, which is another like anti-procrastination tool. So I'll have everything I need, snacks, seven up free, my laptop's in front of me. I've got my plan to my left. So I know what I'm writing or what I'm trying to write. And then I just try and get on with it. I do find that planning and editing requires more time tracking because when you're writing, for example, first draft, 
you have the the easier sense, I think, of, well, I had 50,000 words at the beginning of this session and now I have 52,000 words. Whereas when you're editing or planning, it can be, I think, a lot more frustrating. So I think for that, the productivity tracking is so important because I can sit down and go, I worked for an hour and a half, you know, tick, 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 three boxes on the tracker, that happened. Um, and then I write with breaks. I absolutely don't manage to write kind of steadily for four hours or anything like that. But depending on how busy I am, I'll try and keep going. When I was doing a rewrite event of men, I worked really quickly and very intensely. And I tended to finish at basically 2am every night. And then I would collapse into bed, sleep for six, six and a half hours, and then do it all the next day. That's pretty much the routine. The idea of your tracking is interesting because you were saying earlier how you don't like to pressure yourself too much in, in that, in that regard. And if this was your, you know, it's your, it's your, your first published book, isn't it? The end of men. Mm, yeah. So, although you would have been under some pressure from a publisher to get it out there, but a lot of the time you were, you were, I would imagine you were writing kind of for yourself. Why was it important for you to track your words and track your time? Uh, even when it might not have been going anywhere at that point. I was always very impatient. I'm a very impatient person. Um, And I know that it's not meant to be considered a virtue, but I kind of think it is, to be honest, because I think that one of the most difficult things about novel writing is that it's so big. And by definition, for most of us, until you have an agent and then hopefully a publisher, you are, you're the only person who cares, you know, so you're sitting there and you're kind of going, well, what am I doing this for? No one actually needs me to do this. And I remember seeing a TED talk at one point that talked about how one of the key, one of the top things people regretted at the end of their life was not writing a novel because it was something where it could just kind of keep getting folded over and folded over and you never necessarily needed to do it. So I think I always did take it quite seriously. I treated it from the age, from when I started, when I was 23, I sat down, I started working as one, I went, right, I'm going to give myself two years to write this novel. Like, I'm going to finish a novel. I've tried to write one so many times, I'm going to finish it. So even though at times, obviously, I wasn't working that intensely, I think there was a sense of, come on, you've got to get this done. And having a tracker is really helpful for that. And then I had a near-death experience, which changed things quite a lot, to be honest, when I was 25, when I was nearly done with that first novel. And I'd already had the idea for End of Men. I had sepsis, I nearly died, and it was really intense, very scary. And that really did shift things. And I suddenly became, I think, a lot more impatient with myself and kind of, I didn't think about it this consciously at the time. But there is inevitably a thing of, oh my God, actually, I don't necessarily have limitless time. If I want to write this book, I need to, I need to do it. And so from that point, I started to get a lot more intense about the tracking, the writing, making sure I was really doing something every day and that, you know, wanting to get the book done quickly. The first book took me two years. And I remember thinking, I refuse to have End of Men take two years. Like, I refuse. (laughs) I'm going to get it done quicker than that. You said that having a near-death experience, like, perhaps wasn't that conscious at the time. But how much of a moment do you remember when you did realise, oh, Christ, I need to get cracking on this? I think it was partly that so I, I fell ill at the end of June 2018 and I was in hospital and then on antibiotics for a long time and even by September I was still pretty unwell and I had a month off work because you have what's called qualification leave when you're a lawyer and I remember being very frustrated I managed to finish the first book at the end of August which was a kind of Herculean task you know you finish your first novel it feels huge to be clear I'd written most of it before the June but I did manage to finish it and then I was determined to get going on End of Men and I remember thinking I can't remember what the goal was but I had some ludicrous goal for how much I was going to write in that September that I had off work 
and then I barely got anything done. I think I, I think, well, actually, with hindsight, I did a lot of imaginative work and I managed to write a very helpful introduction that essentially worked as a plan. But I was so annoyed with myself at the end of that September that I, you know, I didn't have the 20 or 30,000 or whatever, how many words I thought I was going to have. So I remember that being quite a conscious thing of, oh, for God's sake, Christina, like hurry up with, which was not very kind to myself. I still wasn't that well. And, you know, but as I got better um, throughout the rest of 2018, you know, I did manage to, to write and, and write quicker. Not many authors that I've spoken to uh, have published their debut still in their 20s. Um, how much thought do you ever give to the idea that, you know, you are start- you have started on this early and where that might take you if you, if you do carry on writing and you, you might be quite prolific at a point? I do think about it quite a lot. Again, the impatience thing comes in, in that I'm already quite... I, my favourite author is Julia Quinn and she was published when she was 25 and I remember being very annoyed with myself when I turned 26 and I hadn't like I, I signed with my agent when I was 26 and we sold end of men when I was 27 and I turned 26 and I still like hadn't finished end of men which was like I knew it was the novel that I was gonna you know I th- thought was gonna get me you know to where I wanted to go um, which again was probably not very kind to myself but I, I do think about it quite a lot and I'm I suppose I don't compare myself that much to other people. I have, it's more that I compare what I'm doing with what I've always wanted. You know, I have goals for myself and like whether I'm reaching them or not. So it is, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just so thrilled. And I mean, still, like, it feels so surreal that I have have been published. The book is like in shops and I try to focus on how proud I am of that and not get annoyed with myself that I didn't do it quicker. Um, but it's exciting. It's really exciting for so long and I think anyone who's who doesn't have an agent yet will know this feeling, all I wanted was an agent. And it still feels so exciting to me that I can have an idea and email my agent and go, what about this? Should I maybe try this? And she goes, yeah, great, like write a draft. And that might end up being a book that's published. That still feels extraordinary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're back with more from Christina in just a sec. It's quite hard to predict this. I'm not a tremendously good planner. Uh, September is very busy, though. Oh, I'm all over the place in September. Um, like, 
normal stuff. In like normal day-to-day family and friends stuff. Which isn't really so much of an excuse. Uh, I'm just pointing out that the schedule for the show might be a little bit topsy-turvy through September. I don't think we've had a break. Maybe Christmas we had a week or so off. But I don't think we've really had a break from the show in like 18 months. And I love the fact that I can carry on bringing you chats with the best authors around as often as I can. I'm not really a fan of kind of series style of podcast with this kind of thing. Um, But I might need to take a little bit of September off. You'll need to keep following our socials. I know it's very like iffy and ambiguous. I'm sorry about that. But just give us a follow on socials at Writers Pod and you can keep across when we've got new episodes out and make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts from. So those episodes, when they do appear, uh, automatically drop into your feed for you. Now, with that in mind, if you're enjoying the fact that we're bringing you these chats, if they are helping you out, helping you uh, learn some tips and advice from some all manners of, of writers, some debutantes, some, some incredibly successful ones. You can always say thank you to us for bringing you that by just pledging a little bit of Patreon every month. Uh, a dollar or so a month really helps us out. It really helps us keep going and keep bringing you these chats. It doesn't take a lot. Anything goes a long way. I really do promise that. Uh, for it, you get, I mean, our eternal thanks always. There's also merch. There's a way uh, for you to get more bonus episodes and uh, you can sponsor the show. Your book can sponsor the show. It will get a big old plug right the way through. To make that happen, uh, just support us any way you can. A little bit a month, it goes an incredibly long way over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Christina Sweeney Baird on the show talking about her debut novel, The End of Men. In this half, we chat about how men reacted to that idea. Uh, I can't imagine that there's there's a type of man who I can't imagine being told that there was a book all about how they weren't going to be around anymore. I can't believe that they took that that well. Christina will tell us more in a little bit. Also, you can hear about how she builds worlds and how she fits the characters into them. And we pick things up talking about the tick boxes that she makes. She mentioned them earlier, but how specific are they? It, this is a big part of her writing day. Uh, ticking things off, feeling like she's getting things done. How visually striking are they? How helpful are they? And she tells us how she makes them too. So in terms of how I build it, it's actually quite easy. I just use lots of different like candles and different coloured or sized um, glasses to create these concentric circles. And I draw little lines so that within each circle, there's kind of a set of boxes. Um, I just quite, I, I think it's one of those things where if you are someone who likes ticking things off a list, making that list as like aesthetically pleasing and satisfying to use as possible, it might take you 40 minutes, you know, once every six months and then give you endless kind of satisfaction at one o'clock in the morning when you've just spent two hours writing. It's a small thing that I think can make a very disproportionate impact on productivity and trying to make yourself feel like you've done good work in the mammoth task that is writing a novel. At what point did you realise you were massively incentivized by taking things off to-do lists? Oh my God, in the womb. I mean, I have <laughs> always been... My mum literally talks about how when I was a toddler, I just enjoyed immensely having a plan for the day, taking things off the list, knowing what I was going to do. I mean, li- literally, it goes back that far. I have always <laughs> I have always enjoyed taking things off lists and, and having that sense of, I know what I'm going to do, and then... I'm sorting everything out. And I'm I'm aware there's a slight irony there that I don't plan my books 
better. So I plan the tasks around writing and the practicalities of writing a lot. The actual content of my books is planned less. But yeah, it's that is just that is always how I've worked. On the words, so you're wanting to get a thousand words down a day when you are writing. I think that's what you said. Uh, how pristine are those words for you? I often think with a word count, sometimes a desperation to reach a thousand might mean towards the end, you're kind of getting down any old thing just so you can tick through the numbers. Um, How perfect does your next word need to be? They are quite pristine, but only insofar as that's just the way that I work. So I don't do trash drafts. To be clear, I always have to rewrite my book several times, but I don't think that's what I'm going to have to do when I'm writing it. I always think what I'm writing is great. Um, So I tend to write hopefully what is good and then I go over it the next day. So I edit as I go along. I don't just get words down for the sake of it. And I need to know what's gone before in order to be able to structure what's going to happen next. Um, and I, I do have a kind of, I don't know, personal honor system. You know, there, there's no, there, there, I wouldn't feel comfortable ticking off the, you know, the writing tracker if I had literally just written what I knew was complete garbage in order to be able to, to head off. If I was at that point, I would go and have a bath or read a book do something else and either call it a day and you know that day we just have a cross or you know take a break and then go back to it I do think the words have to feel like you've actually made progress the debut Christina is the end of men uh tell us about the moment the very first moment that you remember this idea coming into your head so I was in the library and I do have quite a clear memory of it and having this quite spooky thing of okay wait hang a second what would the world look like that men for context, I'd read The Power by Naomi Alderman not that long before and I was going right up to that and I was thinking about it all the time. That book just blew my mind. And I was thinking, so that's what happens if the world has women being physically more powerful than men, but what if there just aren't men? Like, how would the world change if 90% of the world's men died? And very quickly went, okay, that's really interesting. There's a lot to talk about there. I, I don't think that book exists. I want to read that book. I, I need to write that book. And I remember going home at the, like, at the end of my working day and writing down I have a little list like a sheet of little ideas that I write down sometimes I then use it for short stories or you know it's just I like to have everything written down and I just kept going back to it and I knew just very quickly that that was an idea that I was going to write that book that the book I was writing at the time the historical novel wasn't going to get published and the end of Men was going to be the one that would get me an agent and get me published. What happens next I know you said that you ask these questions uh, but how does it come from the idea of, oh, what would happen if m- m- there were no more men? And then how does it become the plot that drives us through 400 odd pages? So there's two key stages. The first was I spent six months thinking about it. So I had that idea in like early 2018 and I didn't actually start writing until the beginning of September 2018. And partly that was because I was determined to finish that first novel. I just I had so many beginnings of novels that I was determined to have one finished and I kind of knew that if I couldn't finish a novel that maybe I would never finish one so I spent six months finishing that first novel and thinking through all these different questions and scenarios for the end of men and writing them down writing those snippets down and basically doing world building so that by the time I did sit down to write in September 2018 even though I wasn't as speedy as I as I had planned to be I had done a lot of background thinking and I wrote an introduction document essentially that is now not in the book but was very helpful when I was writing that first draft that essentially set out in past tense like what happened and it set out the whole plot so you know there is a there is a virus how does it start how did it spread across the world it's set across about six years and that was really the core storyline of how this virus moves across the world 
And then I wrote the first draft over the course of nine months. And it had about 40 different perspectives, which it does not anymore. The book has changed a lot since then. But so in a way, it was almost like writing 20 different short stories. They kind of felt a bit like, or 40 different short stories even, it felt a bit like vignettes. But that really showed you how the world worked and how this virus had spread across the world. And then I signed with my agent in summer 2019. And at that point, End of Men really became a novel. You know, we, we sat back and went, okay, what characters are really working here? And then we basically removed 30 characters and brought out the key five women that the story is told through and a few men as well. And that at that point went in this rewrite process, you know, it went from just showing a world and answering interesting questions to really going, okay, how is this a novel? You are following Catherine. Is her husband going to be okay? Is her son going to be okay? You know, are they going to survive this? What's she going to do with her life? What is her life looking like? in 2030 as opposed to in 2025. Um, so there was some key stages to that process of getting it from an idea to, to a novel that hopefully really feels engaging. I build the world and then the characters need to fit into that world. So you're using the characters to show aspects of the world. So for example, having a character like Catherine, who has a husband and a son who are at risk, you know, you're showing one aspect of the world. I've got another character who is a virologist. So obviously she's going to have very different concerns and, and, and have a very different life. Um, but it's, for me, you know, writing characters and figuring out how, like, what on earth does it feel like to be a 33-year-old woman who suddenly doesn't care about her job particularly because what she cares about is, her, like, her family staying safe. Like, what on earth does that feel like? That is the most interesting bit of writing. So that, I suppose, comes quite easily once the world has been sufficiently built. When you sit there at, this, uh, uh, at the start of your writing session and you've got, you know, a notepad, you've got some cue cards, flashcards all around you, how much do you know about what you need to get done that day, about what those a thousand words will be, where they'll take you? I tend to know the section I'm working in. So I I write quite short chapters. It's I've been told, and it is one of the compliments that I hold dearest to my heart, that, that the end of men is gripping. And that I'm so pleased with that because it's not an accident. I try and write sections where there's just the slightest hint of a cliffhanger at the end of each section. So, you know, you're wanting to know what's going to happen next. So because each chapter or section is quite short generally around the kind of 1500 to 2500 word mark I tend to know that I'm working on that section and often it's easiest to just work section by section so that evening's writing you know I will complete that chapter so I tend to know you know at the end of each day which one I'm going to do next where I'm going next and then try and you know feel like there really has been a chapter completed in a writing session so you write this book you write you get your drafts done and then you end up editing it during a, a pandemic of sorts, part of your story is coming true. How much did what was going on in the world affect how you were changing your story for it to be finally published? It really didn't that much. And that was a very conscious decision my editor and I made. There was one thing we changed, which was that in the original draft, I had it that the virus in the book was created by a pangolin or a rose from a pangolin. And back in you know spring 2020, all we knew was that the coronavirus had been started by a pangolin. That was just too weird. My editor quite rightly said, people are going to think that you've stolen this from the real world when it's the opposite. <laughs> so we did change that, but we really didn't change anything else. We wanted to keep, and there's, we wanted to keep the the world of, you know, the virus in the end of men, which is a very different virus to coronavirus. And that, and that you know, the, the book in many ways is very different from the world we're living in today. We wanted to keep it preserved as its own you know imaginative world its own parallel universe there is no mention of covid in the book for example but i have found it interesting that some people have some early reviewers have read the book and very confidently said well she's clearly changed x y and z based on covid but 
for example, you know, if you look at thing, if you look at pandemics, there's a lot of public health literature and people that have been studying this for a long time around pandemics. We've all become far more aware of those terms and and that the existence of that science now, because unfortunately we're living through it. But if you research a pandemic as I did while you're, you know, because you're writing a book about one, a lot of that stuff is already there. So some of it was just that I imagined, for example, how weird it would feel to start flying again, you know, after several years of the world not really having um, kind of travel. But some of it is just that I had done the research and then it, um, very unfortunately, that research has become far more relevant to our lives than we ever anticipated. You mentioned that when the f- the rush of this story was coming to you, you pretty much had it had it figured out the whole thing, didn't you? Is that is that what you said? Yeah, that the, the story, how the the virus itself function, you know, kind of started and then spread across the world, and how the the world in a broad sense structurally changed. Yes. So tell me about the moment that you arrived at the ending, as in the point of the story when you're writing it, and you figure out ah, this is what's going to happen. And then how much were your characters trying to pull you in perhaps different directions? That's a good question, because in that first draft, I actually barely remember the ending because I can't quite. I think I had a prime minister, like a perspective of a prime minister talking about how the world had changed. And that was the end. But it wasn't actually that satisfying because that first draft just didn't really have enough emotional engagement because you kept going to so many different characters and not staying with them. Whereas I remember very clearly writing the end of what the book is now I think the the ending of the book may well be my favorite chapter and I had I don't want to spoil it I had known for quite a while that I wanted to have I really can't say anything about spoiling it this this there's a specific form that the final chapter takes and I knew that I wanted to have that specific form and I knew the kind of the thing that was going to happen to the final character like that would give a sense of resolution and finish the book off well but I remember going over it for several nights and really editing it, being re- you know rewriting it, rewriting it. And I remember sitting there on my sofa and writing the final few lines. The final line of the book actually um, mirrors the dedication to my mum at the beginning of the book. And writing the final line and going, yes, that that has worked very well, and it feeling like the characters had kind of reached the end point that I wanted for them. Now, if you're writing a book in 2021 about you know there almost being no men left. Um, there will be a type of man who will be very annoyed that you've written this book. Um, How much thought do you kind of give to that? Not too much, mainly because everyone who's read the book says, oh, you know, it is in many ways a kind of love letter to men and women. You know, there is no mystery in the book at all. One of the key things in the book is is really, you know, the, the world's need to have both men and women and how awful it would be both emotionally and structurally if men didn't exist anymore. And then also exploring just practically what would happen as a consequence. So I think anyone criticising a book on the basis of a title and a premise, you know, it, it's, it's just kind of daft, isn't it? Because you don't know what the book is really about. But it's not a coincidence, I think, that, you know, if you look at the reviews, there are not reviews going, oh my God, this book is full of wizardry. Because it's not. Even my US editor is a man. I remember when we first spoke, he went, I didn't really know what to expect from this book. And then I read it and I went, oh my God, this book is absolutely something that men and women can both enjoy. And lastly, having published your first novel and and having played around with ones before that, and now you're writing your second, how much have you learned about the way that you work, about writing a novel that can be published, that you will move on to future work with you? Oh, question. So I'm currently in draft three hell on two different books. So sometimes I feel like I have not learned very much at all. But that's actually not true. I have learned a lot. I think the main thing I've learned 
is that the work is never wasted. So especially I think speculative fiction is really hard to structure, figuring out what's going to happen on page or off page and how to make a really big concept feel interesting and manageable and and shown through a number of perspectives is quite difficult. So I think what I've learned is that even if it feels like, you know, that first draft didn't work, but the second draft is working better and you're now, you know, finally on the third draft and hope it's going to work, that the, whatever has happened in those earlier drafts will definitely help you. Even if you can't see it, it will have some impact on the later drafting. And I think that also is something more generally that I always say to people who ask me about writing is to just not be surprised by the amount of redrafts and edits and and rewrites it takes. When I was 23 and I started writing, I just absolutely did not have a clue. And if someone had said to me, you know, by the way, this first draft you're writing is like not going to be a published book at all. Like it's going to have to change a lot. I'd have gone, that's very rude. How dare you? This is a great book. (laughs) Because I just didn't, I just didn't understand. So yeah, I think I've learned that you need to do the rewrites. That's okay. Each of them has its own kind of impact on what the book is going to be. Um, and that you'll get there and the work is worth it. It's not wasted. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Christina for coming on the show. You can get a link uh, to get yourself a copy of the book, The End of Men, wherever you're listening to the show. It's in the podcast notes and it's over at writersroutine.com too. While you're online, that's one of the best places that you can get in touch with us. You can send a message on the contact page on the Writer's Routine website. You can also give us a follow on Twitter. We are at writerspod there. Now, next week, uh, we're chatting to the screenwriter, the playwright, the author, Paul Rudnick, uh, who has... He wrote Adam's Family Values. He wrote Sister Act as well under a pseudonym, I think, because he he didn't like what they did with it. Uh, And he's got a brand new novel out. Uh, A little bit different kind of all the way from America, from Hollywood pretty much. I think, no, he was from, when did I show it? Maybe he was from New York or New Jersey, somewhere like that. Yeah, it'll be a touch of movie magic, something unusual and different for us. Love chatting to all different forms of writers and Paul Rudnick is coming on the show to tell us how he does it. Make sure you follow us wherever you get your shows from and I'll see you then next week on Writer's Routine. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.